Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, we welcome back Dan Kennedy, longtime Boston area journalist and professor of journalism at Northeastern University. Dan's blog, Media Nation, is a nationally recognized source of news and commentary, and he co-hosts, along with Ellen Clegg, a podcast called What Works? The Future of Local News. Dan and I had a wide-ranging chat about the media landscape as 2022 comes to a close. I hope you enjoy it. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please follow, leave a five-star rating, and share. And now on to my conversation with Dan Kennedy. Hello, Dan Kennedy, and welcome back to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Good to be here. It's good to see you again. I can't believe that we're rounding up just a, another year. I was I was checking back on the last time you and I spoke, and it was just over a year ago. It's kind of head spinning how quickly a year goes by. It really is. Time flies when you're in the middle of a pandemic and war and everything else. Yes, exactly. The stuff of life tends to uh, accumulate. So uh, not to put you on the spot immediately, but I'm going to put you on the spot immediately. We're winding down 2022. So as you as you view uh, the world and the events of the world from your perch as a professor at Northeastern University in their School of Journalism and as the uh, the author and the editor and the journalist behind the Media Nation blog, and and really just if I think I think it's safe to say you're a bit of an omnivore uh, when it comes to all things media. Um, what are your big headlines coming out of 22 going into 23? Well, you know, I spend a lot of my time these days thinking about and writing about the future of local news. Um, as as you know, I'm working on a book with Alan Clegg about that very topic. Yep. And, uh, you know, just as we are speaking today, uh, it appears that the government will not be riding to the rescue of local news. It's being reported that two significant pieces of legislation that could have helped local news organizations are not being included in the uh, omnibus spending bill that Congress is considering. Yep. And uh, with the Republicans taking over the House in a few weeks, I would say that's the end of that. And I have to say, I'm a little bit disappointed, especially in the loss of possible tax credits that could have helped local news organizations. But at the same time, I, I, I think that focusing on government help to some extent takes away from where the focus ought to be, which is on all of the uh, news organizations out there that are covering their communities and doing a good job of it because they're not burdened with corporate chain ownership or hedge fund ownership. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things that Alan and I are really trying to bring out in our book, that once you get 
the the dead hand of Wall Street off uh, of your local news, there are, in fact, ways forward, although that's not to say that it isn't a challenge. Yes. And just just to touch upon, you mentioned Ellen Clegg, um, who, who's going to be your, your co-author with the book that you're writing. She's also the co-host of a podcast that that you and her uh, co-host, which is which is also called uh, What Works, uh, the Future of Local News. And I and before we wrap up t- later today, I do want to get your take on how your podcasting experience has been. Uh, but back to the 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 trends around local news. Um this may fall into the category of if it bleeds, and I think the, the bleeding here refers to uh, financial bleeding. If it bleeds, it leads. <clears throat> I'm continually seeing stories about this, that, or the other uh, local news um, outlet either experiencing massive layoffs or just shutting down altogether. Has that trend continued and accelerated in 2022? I think that one of the things that we saw in 2022 that is disturbing but not surprising is that Gannett, which is the largest newspaper chain in the country with more than 200 daily papers uh, anchored by USA Today, uh, has really been unable to get on top of the uh, massive amount of debt that they took on in order to create that chain. Uh, now, that's not to say that they don't find a way to pay Mike Reed, their CEO, $7.7 million a year, I think it is. Uh, but, you know, that's just some loose change uh, line well, you know, you get, corporate you, headquarters. Those ink-stained wretches have to have to be compensated in some fashion, right? That's right. So, I mean, what we've seen is round after round of downsizing, layoffs, furloughs, uh, frozen contributions to retirement funds. And as you say, um, paper shutting down. Gannett has really been getting out of the weekly newspaper business in eastern Massachusetts, where both of us are. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, uh, a number of communities have been left with some very good digital startups in some cases, but nothing in other cases. Uh, in the community I live in, we really have nothing at the moment. And uh, we're, we can only hope and work to try to bring something online so that the information needs of the community are being met in ways that they're just not being met right now. Yeah. And I and, and I'm going to assume that the import of that is, is is as natural as breathing to you in terms of being able to draw the line. But underscore again for our listeners, the relationship between vibrant local news sources and democracy. You know, I, I think that this tends to get overlooked because, as you say, we, we kind of take it for granted. Mm-hmm. But. We have we're living through a moment where people are obsessed with what's going on at the national level politically. Uh, I think that the the Trump era really did that to us. And as much as we might like to put the Trump era behind us, we just don't seem to be able to do that. But we live in communities and what's taking place at our local city or town hall and our local school system, our police department, uh, our our zoning boards is uh, of much more importance to us in the long run than really what's happening at the national level. 
level. And it's become increasingly difficult to get good, reliable information about what's going on at these local institutions because there's nobody to cover it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, we depend on, you know, neighborhood groups on Facebook, uh, next door, things like that. And Honestly, I see a lot of criticism of these Facebook groups. People say, well, it's just nothing but hate and rumor mongering. Um, maybe I just live in a special kind of place because what I see are people sincerely trying to make sense of what's going on. Right. But of course, they don't have the time to go cover it themselves. So mainly we're asking each other, have you heard? Have you heard this? Have you heard that? Yep. And I wouldn't call it rumor mongering so much as I would a sincere effort to find out what's going on when we don't have journalists to bring home the story every day. Yeah. Tip O'Neill famously said all politics is local, but the machinations of all politics is also local in the sense that the citizenry uh, really has to be aware of it in order to know what's at what's at stake. And, you know, there there is a role for citizen journalism. But, you know, let's not mince words. It's 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 at the level of a hobbyist. It's at the level of uh, people who may not be fully informed of all of the who, what, when, where, and whys. So it's, you know, it it really isn't a viable alternative. I think that sometimes it can be a helpful supplement to um, uh, more focused and, and more really professional journalism. Well, I mean, I'm actually a big believer that if you could get citizen volunteers to sit through city council meetings, school committee meetings and and come back and just try to do a fair and honest job of relating what they saw, uh, there would be tremendous value in that. But the the biggest shortcoming of citizen journalism, in my view, is that, you know, people have to go out and work for a living. Absolutely. They, they can't yeah. they can't sit through these meetings and and uh, and come back and tell the story of what happened. Yep. Uh, I, I don't put down citizen journalism at all. But people have lives and they they just don't have time to do that. The secret sauce in professional journalism in a lot of cases is just that you're paying people to do this. You're not paying them as much as they ought to be making, but you're paying them something. Yes. And as a result, they can put in the time to, to do this work. Did you I took a little bit of solace from the uh, midterm elections in the sense that it felt to me that some of those more um, let's just call them esoteric positions at, at the state level um, really were um, they went in a pro-democracy way. So in other words, maybe six years ago or four years ago, nobody even realized that there was a secretary of state at the at the state level uh, that there were, you know, state level office holders who were crucial to keeping the wheels of democracy greased in the in the manner that they should be. Does does that type of engagement and um, knowledge around that level of player? Does that first of all, did you did you share that observation and do you have any thoughts on that? There were a lot of election deniers who were uh, who who 
one election. Uh, but as I follow this, it seems that the people who are actually in charge of enforcing the election laws mm -hmm. in some of the key swing states, um, election deniers were not successful in winning those positions. And I, I, I think that's I agree with you. I think that's enormously important moving forward. And I think that that speaks to the importance of um, local and regional news coverage because uh, voters found out about, you know, who stood where on some of these uh, issues of election denialism mm -hmm. uh, from local and regional news organizations. And uh, maybe if we had really strong, truly local news coverage in some of these places, then some of the election deniers that won more local office might have uh, had a harder time of getting elected as well. Mm -hmm. You know, as you and I are talking, the New York Times just broke the other day a story about a newly elected Republican member of Congress from Long Island named George yes. Santos, yep. who appears to have faked his entire resume. Uh, I'm not sure he even exists. <laughs> and uh, and and a lot of people are tearing into the times for not exposing this story before the election. And, you know, it certainly would have been nice if they had exposed it before the election. But my first thought was, you know, who's covering that congressional district? Yeah. Where is the local grassroots news organization that would have been keeping an eye on this and preventing somebody like George Santos from gaining traction in the first place? Yeah, um, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of responsibility being laid at the feet of The New York Times and also a lot of the responsibility being laid at the feet of the lack of opposition research done by uh, the uh, the Democratic Party and the Democratic candidates uh, offices that that he was running against. Well, I certainly think that when you're when you're running for office and if you're trying to take it seriously, you've got to do some deep opposition research. And obviously, the Democratic Party there didn't do that. But more than anybody, I, I think that these local candidates need to be vetted by really local news organizations. Exactly. And we really can't depend on The New York Times to swoop in yeah. and expose every bit of wrongdoing that's going on in the country. Although in this case, this was a congressional seat that was in their backyard. Absolutely. And and ju just to um, underscore the, the level of potential deception uh, that that was uncovered, it's, it's really not just goose in this guy's resume. I mean, literally making up positions that he seemingly never held at, I think it was Citigroup and Goldman, uh, making up uh, a college CV that appears to be entirely fictitious. It's it's just really remarkable. I mean, it's one of those things that <laughs> it comes along maybe every once every 10 years that you see somebody who's trying to engage in deception on this level. And this is the second time he's run. And it is just kind of amazing that there was no local news organization to uh, vet him the first time he ran, never mind the second time when he was actually elected. Absolutely. And so speaking of The New York Times, uh, in just the last couple of weeks, there was a one day strike um, that took place at The Times. Um, what do you know about that? What do you know about what the objectives were and what, if any, outcome uh, have we have we learned in the aftermath? 
Well, when you ask about the objectives, there was this the one of the early great labor leaders in this country was Samuel Gompers, and <laughs> great name. Uh, he, and and he was once leading a a strike of industrial workers somewhere, and supposedly a reporter asked him, "Well, what is it you want?" And he said, "More," <laughs> and uh, and and I think that's the perfect um, I think that's the perfect attitude for a labor leader to have. Uh, I think that the issue with the Times, as I know it, is that they the union believes, uh, rightly so, I would say, that the Times has emerged as probably the most successful for-profit news organization in the country. Yes, it's growing. It's profitable. It's despite news- it being referred to as the failing New York Times the, the, the for about failing four New York years Times. running. <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, it's growing, it's profitable. It has more people working in its newsroom than it ever has at any time in its history. And members of the union are saying, you know, we want our share of that. You know, why do you think it's growing and profitable? It's because of the work that we did. Right. Um, You contrast that with their uh, ancient rival, the Washington Post, uh, which, you know, I wrote a book about a few years ago and right. and and they were going full speed ahead at the time. Uh, unfortunately, the Post has hit some real roadblocks there. They're, uh, they're, the number of their subscribers has is reportedly shrinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's losing money for the first time in, oh, gosh, seven or eight years, I think. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, Jeff Bezos, the billionaire owner, um, you don't hear much from him anymore about the post and uh, reportedly people at the post don't hear much from him anymore. I I worry that he's losing interest in the post and maybe getting ready to uh, walk away, which would be a real shame. And wasn't there, I believe it was last week, there was a town hall meeting of sorts of uh, Post employees and the, um, I don't know if it was the publisher or the CEO, who essentially came in and intimated that there were going to be pretty sizable layoffs coming after the first of the year, uh, but then just walked out of the meeting. Yeah, that was Fred Ryan, the publisher. I, I think a lot of people are predicting that um, one of the people who may be laid off in 2023 is Fred Ryan, uh-huh. uh, because his his handling of this couldn't possibly be any worse. And I wish I knew where I picked this up. But the other day I read that uh, Sally Busby, the fairly new executive editor of The Post, the, the, the woman who followed the legendary Marty Baron, mm-hmm. uh, has been openly musing that maybe she might quit, uh, which which would just rock the post to its foundation and uh, really put Bezos in the position of almost having to start over again. What do you think the deal is with the and I know it's a it's a super complicated question, but do you think that maybe because the post and the times are viewed as sort of national papers that there's really only enough room for one? Well, you know, I've wondered that myself, and I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, 
I think maybe there's room for two. Uh, maybe there's even room for three. Uh, but I think they all have to have a different mission. Absolutely. So, yeah. so the Times is doing well. The Wall Street Journal is doing well. But the Journal has a different mission. Absolutely. It it um it does do some terrific general news coverage, but it's focused on business. Right. Uh, it also has a a nutty editorial page that appeals to some people. Sure. Um, so they're doing okay. The Post, I think, is in this impossible position of being, well, we're just like the Times, but we're cheaper and we don't have as many resources. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's a good position to be in. I don't think so either. You know, sometimes I will, I will look at the digital front page of the uh, the Times and the Post, and I'm just amazed at the similarity that almost to the wording of the headlines. And every now and again, one will scoop the other. But, you know, within hours, the other is going to come in with a different take on the same story. And I and I just always think, man, this has got to be a really difficult position to create that that meaningful differentiator in. Yeah, it's it's really tough and I don't quite know how to do how how they ought to go about doing it. I know that um in the waning years of the Graham ownership, mm-hmm. uh, their solution was to double down on being a regional paper for Washington. Right. Um, it's sort of like the Boston Globe, only bigger. Yeah. And um, they weren't having that an awful lot of luck with that either. Mm-hmm. So Bezos comes in and says, well, we're going to be national. We're going to be digital. And that will be our solution for turning the post into a growing and profitable enterprise. And it worked for a long time. Yep. But I think that the the Trump bump that helped so many um, news organizations during those years, uh, it's worn off for the Post, even yes. though it hasn't worn off for the Times. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So you mentioned a little while ago uh, some encouraging, I guess, um, developments on the, in the digital realm for some for, for some local news entities. But I was reading I, just, I think, yesterday on your blog, uh, your headline was, Can Print Editions Survive the Decline of Advertising at the Globe and Elsewhere? Uh, what's the synopsis of, of that piece? Well, you know, you keep in mind that you're talking to somebody who was predicting 15 to 18 years ago that print newspapers wouldn't be around by now. So you weren't alone. <laughs> so so, you know, take this for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, we gradually are seeing the the advertising bleeding out of print newspapers. Yeah. And uh as that has happened, we're seeing more and more daily papers drop print days so that they might be in print six days a week, five, four, and then they're digital only the rest of the time. But by the way, I don't take that as necessarily a bad thing as long as they're not cutting back on their journalism. Uh, the Globe has managed to continue in print seven days a week. And 
they seem to be doing well. Uh, I know that John Henry said just before the pandemic, John Henry, the owner of the Globe, Mm -hmm. said just before the pandemic that the Globe had achieved profitability. Uh, He hasn't addressed that particular issue since then, but they continue to hire and expand their newsroom. So obviously there is no sense of crisis there. But at the same time, their print circulation has gotten pretty small. And the number of print ads that they carry on certain days of the week, uh, especially like Monday and Tuesday, are almost non-existent. And given how successful the Globe has been in selling digital subscriptions, you have to wonder if they're going to reach a point where they're going to start cutting back on print. Now, I think the reason they don't cut back on print is that they have a very simple business model for print. They charge a fortune. Uh, If you want seven days of print delivered to your doorstep, it costs like $1,400 a year. I know. I read that stat in your article. It blew my mind. It's it's amazing. We can't afford it. We're seven days digital now with the globe. And uh, that's fine. That's where they're heading eventually anyway. I do think... And, you know, keeping in mind that I was completely wrong 15 years ago, uh, I do think that eventually most daily newspapers in the country are going to go digital seven days a week. And maybe they'll have a big weekend print edition, put it out on Saturday, let people enjoy it all weekend. Uh, But other than that, it's going to be strictly digital Uh, because in the long run, if you can't In the long run, you can't continue with print unless you're going to get a decent amount of advertising. The value of print advertising has held up better than the value of digital advertising. But nevertheless, it continues to diminish. And we're really starting to see that in a big way. Yeah, and I wonder if there's a if there's a model wherein the if, if they were to go to that weekend only print it would give the opportunity for maybe deeper dives into stories that were treated digitally, you know, during the week. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, because I, I don't I, after decades, not only of reading the, the Boston Globe and print, edi- uh, print edition, but I was a paper boy for years. And I think I still have the lower back strain from when they used to have loads of advertising. I remember having to make two trips on on Thursdays. Thursdays, the paper was it, it had to be three feet thick <laughs> with yeah. all of the advertising and the supplements and the calendar magazine. But when I look at print editions of the Boston Globe these days, sporadic as it is, I don't once upon a time, the Globe also, in my estimation, used to be known for those deeper dives that investigative journalism, but also beyond the headlines. And when I thumb through the Boston Globe these days, I don't know what the exact percentages is, but I almost feel like I'm reading the local edition of USA Today. Well, That's what the Sunday paper is for, right? And uh, we certainly do see uh, some terrific investigative work uh, and some long form pieces in the Sunday Globe. Yep. Uh, by the way, shout out to my former student, Alexa Gagos, who had that wonderful long story on a couple in Rhode Island who 
um, lost their housing. And despite the fact that they had been uh, living a decent two job middle class lifestyle, uh, ended up living out of a tent in a uh, campground for a while. Uh, So we still do see that work on Sundays. And I would expect that if we go to as I said, a big weekend print edition with digital the rest of the week. Uh, that's where you would see a lot of that long form um, journalism in the in the weekend edition. Yeah. At yeah. the same time, I hope that as we start losing print days and I'm I'm not predicting this imminently for the globe. I just think it's where the whole industry is going. As we lose print days, I hope that publishers don't look at um, daily digital as just a way to do, well, we'll just do some quick updates during the week. No, I, I want, I want to see a complete product every day as, as a consumer of news. Granted, I'm more obsessive about it than many people are, but, but they've got to keep us obsessives happy or they're not going to be uh, successful. (laughs) That's very true. You need the obsessives. (laughs) So, as we as we wind down 2022, uh, all the oxygen has been sort of taken out of the media room by a uh, billionaire um, who has bought something called Twitter. Yes. And uh, I haven't been on Twitter quite as long as I discovered you had been past tense, but you have chosen to leave Twitter. Tell us why. Yeah, well, um, and by the way, that's a choice for the moment. Everything is always subject to revision, right? Absolutely, yes. Um, (laughs) Twitter is getting such an enormous amount of coverage because of the damage that uh, Elon Musk is doing to it. Uh, and, and I, and the reason it's been getting so much coverage is that Twitter is really important to people in journalism and politics. Right. If you look at it in a broader sense, it's not that important. It's by far the smallest of the social media platforms. Yep. Um, even though Facebook has stumbled, it's by far, it's far bigger and more important than Twitter. But Twitter really matters to people in media and politics. And so uh, the fact that he is running it in such a crazed manner uh, is is pretty disturbing to those of us who've been relying on it for a long time. Uh, it isn't for me. It wasn't that he allowed uh, Trump and his merry band of um, uh, QAnon supporters back onto Twitter. I kind of figure like Twitter's big enough for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's that Musk himself with his 120 million followers uh, was, you know, tweeting some pretty horrible stuff about Dr. Fauci, yeah. about uh, his former head of trust and safety uh, that was, you know, conceivably putting their lives in danger. The former head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, had to flee his house and move to like an undisclosed location. And my feeling was, you know, if this is what he's going to do, I'm out of here. So I am mainly these days on one of the alternative platforms that sprung up called Mastodon. Yes. Um, so the two that I that that I hear most frequently about is Mastodon or Post. 
Mastodon and Post, I'm on both. I like Mastodon better. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very Twitter-like once you overcome the hurdle of figuring out how to sign on. Um, it's a little confusing in that it's very decentralized. You have to choose which server of Mastodon you're going to join. Yep. I chose one for journalists, but... It, it, at the same time, they're all interconnected. So you're connecting to that wider audience even now. Yep. And even though I don't have nearly as many followers on Mastodon as I did on Twitter, um, I feel like I'm getting about the same level of engagement. Yeah. And one of the dirty little secrets of Twitter, I believe, is that for somebody who's been around for a long time, like I have, a lot of people hadn't logged on for years. Sure. Uh, a lot of them are bots. Some of them may be dead. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think that we take those follower counts with a grain of salt. Yeah. And you had mentioned just just to keep Twitter in perspective, because it is so journalist centric or or seemingly uh, or journalist adjacent <laughs> in it in its audience and membership. Um, I think it's easy to to think that this is going to be the preeminent social media platform, not by a long shot. The most recent data I saw had Twitter at about 330 million users and Facebook is up around is well over a billion. No, it's, it's the, the you can't there's no comparison. Right. And the difference in audience is really significant as well. Sure. Um, I've been talking with local news publishers now for many years. I mean, the project I'm now working on is like my third book on the subject. And they've always told me they get nothing out of Twitter. Their audience is on Facebook and they try to connect with their audience on Facebook because that's where people in local communities are. Right. Uh, I mean, let's face it. People who are really interested in local news tend to be a little older like me <laughs> sure. uh, and uh, and and older people are not on Twitter. Well, you know, the other thing is you can't miss what you never knew. And so there's there, there's whole decades of, um, you know, people who would probably think of themselves as as pretty rabid media consumers. But if you never consumed media at the local level, how do you even know it's gone? That's right. That's right. Well, OK, so now we're coming back full circle to local news. And this does bring me back to one of my favorite observations about local news. And that is, I think that successful local news organizations can't content themselves with merely informing their audience. Yep. They also have to re-educate the public about the, the importance of local news uh, through events, through all kinds of outreach. Yep. And I think that without that, it's just going to continue to wither away because we've kind of lost the local news instinct and we need to get that back. Sure. Let's go into the classroom for a minute. Um, and I know I talked to you about this when we spoke about a year ago. I'm always interested in, given the, you hear about shutdowns, you hear about furloughs, you hear about layoffs, you hear about diminishing uh, resources for particular types of outlets. I'm So I'm always curious as to what would compel 
an intelligent, bright, young person to want to pursue journalism. What do you hear along those lines? Well, you know, I'm it, probably if you dug out what we talked about last year, you could put it right on instant <laughs> replay. Um, so I have a few answers to that question. And one of them is we've always had a lot of journalism students who are majoring in journalism because they believe that it gives them a well-rounded education that will allow them to pursue just about anything. Yes, um, I remember you saying that. You're learning how to do research. You're learning how to talk to people. You're learning how to present yourself. You're learning how to write. I mean, these are skills that are valuable in, no matter what you do. Uh, I would also say that a subset of that is a lot of our students end up going into various public relations and communications types of fields. Right. And that isn't true only in 2022. It was just as true when I was going to journalism school many decades ago. So that hasn't changed. So then we are left with a very healthy number of students who want to go into journalism. Right. And I've got to tell you, they find ways to do it. First of all, keep in mind that a lot of them are going into local TV news. And we haven't talked about that at all. Right. Local TV news is doing OK. Um, they have kind of a boom and bust cycle. They do very well in election years because of all the campaign ads. And then they have... Then they have difficulties in the off years, but and they're doing all minutes of weather. <laughs> that's right. But they're but they're doing and some of our we have some very good local TV stations in Boston that are doing news. So a lot of them go into that. Um, unfortunately, thanks to our friends at Gannett and Alden Global Capital, a lot of the community newspaper jobs that used to exist are starting to dry up. But we have graduates of our program at the Boston Globe, at ProPublica, at places like Politico and BuzzFeed, um, they seem to find a way to do it. Right. And uh, and I really admire them for that. Um, I couldn't have imagined jumping from journalism school to a large regional or even national news organization uh, when I graduated back in 1979. Mm -hmm. But our students, um, God bless them, they're a lot smarter than I am. And many of them seem to find a way to do it. So you mentioned that um, some of the students not only will move into journalism positions, but, you know, might go into corporate communications or PR, which just reminded me of the uh, Twitter files uh, that were published by really former journalists, because if I'm not mistaken, both Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi are now on Elon Musk's payroll. They are not. No, no, they're still journalists. They're just not very good. Uh, <laughs> uh, See, lesson actually, for me, don't believe everything you read on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> actually, um, that's a bad way to put it. Let me start over with that again. Sure. Um, Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi are still working in journalism, but they also are self-publishing now on Substack. And um, they 
I don't really understand why they put themselves at the service of uh, Elon Musk in the way that they did. Uh, one of the first things that we learn in journalism is that um, we have to be independent. And um, I don't think that you are acting as an independent journalist, especially when you were taking handouts from Elon Musk and um writing about them in the way that they have, you know, they might say that, well, we have been independent, but, you know, Musk wasn't sharing everything with them. He was selectively sharing certain records with them, and then they were uh, writing what they found. So even if they were trying to give this as fair-minded a reading as possible, they did so knowing that there was a lot of stuff they weren't saying. Right. Now, I will say that Barry Weiss, to her credit, has been criticizing Musk in recent days for banning journalists. Yes, um, he did not take kindly to that. No, of course he didn't. <laughs> um, he doesn't take kindly to And yet I keep trashing him and he won't ban me. Um, I don't understand it. Um, I, I have tried to post links to my um, Mastodon account and those get identified as dangerous and I can't post them. But, uh, but, uh, by, by the way, just, just to clarify, you said I was off Twitter. I have locked down my account. Um, I will occasionally post here's where you can find me now. Okay. And that's the distinction. Yes. And that's the extent of what I do. Yes. I'm, I'm sort of just, I'm I'm like the guy hovering at the party trying to figure out if it's breaking up or not. (laughs) 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 I'm not really saying a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Back to your students for a minute. Um, I'm curious if you ever hear um, about maybe other pieces of media, whether it was books or movies. Like I know when I was growing up, I even though I didn't really understand what was going on, I became obsessed with all the president's men and the you know, what what looked like investigative journalism on the part of Woodward and Bernstein. But that was, you know, a thousand years ago. Uh, I'm curious if you ever hear from your students about things like that, where a particular piece of media or something in the pop culture inspired them to uh, pursue journalism? Of course, they've all watched Spotlight, um, which has been an enormous inspiration to this generation of journalists in much the same way that uh, All the President's Men was to our generation of journalists. Uh, The difference, unfortunately, is that All the President's Men came out during journalism's upward arc, kind of our heroic period, uh, where there were uh, a lot more jobs and it was a growing field. As inspirational as Spotlight has been, uh, it came out at a time when the business was struggling and it wasn't as attractive as maybe it had once been. Uh, But as I said, I still see no shortage in the number of young people who want to uh, go into journalism as well as some of the related fields that we talked about. You know, our our graduate program in particular is growing by uh, leaps and bounds. And some of it is because we have something called a media advocacy track in the graduate program, which is for people who are interested in going to work for nonprofits or maybe political campaigns and things like that. Uh, But a lot of it is also 
what we call our media innovation track, where students are doing deep dives into data, data visualization, uh, things that I don't understand at all. And those students are getting some really good jobs once they get their master's degree. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I do think that some of the, uh, and I'm going to go back to the Times, um, got to really give credit to the Times for, I think, doing a, a, a great job maximizing some of the benefits of the digital realm in terms of presenting infographics uh, and infographics in the way that the animation augments and clarifies elements of a story. They had a piece just a few days ago where uh, it, it was all about the layout of Mar-a-Lago uh, relative to where some of these uh, classified documents were stored. And it's just the combination of the visual uh, with the textual uh, was really a difference maker. I don't even know why you'd want to read the Times in print. Um, I think they offer so much more online. Yep. And even the Globe does. I mean, I, I find that they do some very interesting things on their website that you just... You just can't get in print. To talk to you a little bit about your experience with What Works, your the podcast that you host with Ellen Clegg. Uh, you guys are almost you got almost fifty episodes under your belt. Uh, what are you learning about What Works for podcasting? You know, Ellen and I are having so much fun with the podcast. We really are. Um, She's the technical guru. Uh, I'm just kind of along for the ride. One of the things that I think has been, and maybe you can tell us about this too. One of the things I think that we have found to be a rather unexpected technical challenge is that no matter how easy we think we're making it, uh, we've had a number of guests who just really struggle with the technology. And uh, we end up with some pretty bad audio sometimes. And, uh, and, and we don't really know how to solve that because we can solve what we do on our end, but it's pretty hard to solve what they're doing on their end. Yeah. Interesting. Um, not to get into the weeds around, <laughs> around podcast coordination, uh, but how are you conducting most of your interviews? Well, Ellen was trying a number of services that she thought would give us better audio. And we have finally come back to Zoom because everybody knows how to use it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and that's been more helpful to us recently. And uh, but then you end up with somebody that got a bad Wi-Fi connection or yeah, there's a there, lot of traffic. Circumstances. Out. You can't control what you can't control. No, you can't. That That's exactly it. What we also try to do is we ask them to record themselves on their phone um, and then send us the audio afterwards. And uh, if the audio that we got via Zoom isn't very good, Ellen has a way of... Um, of, of syncing in the audio from the phone. And that gives really good sound. But then we've had people who struggle to record themselves on their phone. I mean, what can I say? I mean, I would love to be able to give you pointers. I mean, I, we're, we're blessed with having a, uh, a genius engineer who cleans up everything for us. AJ is comes to my rescue pretty much every episode. Um, but I'd be more than happy to put you in touch with him. Uh, and he might be able to give you guys some insight, giving you a little bit of plug, AJ. I'm curious uh, about your media consumption habits. Um, are there particular journalists who you make sure you read everything they publish? 
my media habits are so boring. <laughs> um, they're very mainstream. Okay. Um, it is largely the Times and the Globe. I have nothing to read locally about the community I live in anymore, so yeah. I can't I can't give any sort of a plug to that. Um, because I live in the Boston area, I love Universal Hub. Um, yep. I think that uh, Adam Gaffin, who's been running that service for many years now, does a great job of um, not only doing some original reporting, which he didn't used to do, but now he does it a fair amount of the time, but just also aggregating a ton of stuff that I might have missed. Right. Um, I'm not in the car nearly as often as I used to be, so I don't listen to the radio as much as I used to. Uh, but, you know, I, I do consider, with some reservations, I do consider NPR to be one of our great news organizations. And, uh, you know, I'll try to at least flip through the New Yorker and the Atlantic um, from time to time, but I don't do that as often as I would like. Um Yes, yeah, speaking I, of NPR, in another plug for your your podcast, you had a really good conversation uh, w with um, uh, someone from WBUR a couple of weeks ago, uh, and you know co covered sort of the state of play with NPR. I recommend interested listeners to check that out. Well, if you take a look at our past podcasts at whatworks.news slash podcast, uh, you'll see that we uh, have had interviews with the general managers of both of Boston's major um, public media outlets. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're talking about our interview with Margaret Lowe of WBUR a few uh, weeks ago. Yes. But earlier in the year, we also interviewed Pam Johnston, who's the general manager of GBH News, uh, which I um, was a contributor to for many years. I'm not sure that I am at the moment, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, but I I was on uh, I did quite a bit for them for a long period of time. Uh, we were hoping to get them on together, but um, we screwed up the scheduling, so we had to have them separately. But maybe it was better because they they both got to talk more in depth about the work that they're doing. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with the uh, Intelligence Squared uh, debate series. Um, there's Intelligence Squared and then there's Intelligence Squared U.S. And uh, I've, I've had John Donvan, uh, who's the moderator, on a couple of times on the podcast. But they recently had a really interesting debate around, is NPR still relevant? And it's classic debate where there's a proposition and one side will uh, argue in favor of and another will argue in opposition to um but it's it's refreshing because it's not just people screaming talking points at each other. Uh, but it, it there was a lot of food for thought on that. Well, that's interesting. And the idea that anybody could even argue that it's irrelevant, I find really at odds with one of the major debates that's going on in journalism at the moment. And that is that some of our best sources of news nationally and locally are being walled off behind paywalls and that uh, there are a number of people who can't um, afford to access them. And at a time like that, free services like NPR and at the regional level, WBUR and GBH News, strike me as being more important than ever. 
Now, they, they would probably be offended by my describing them as free. Of course, they're hoping for contributions and membership. Right. But if you can't afford that, that's a super high quality source of news and it doesn't cost anything. Absolutely. Well, Dan, I could go on for a long time, but you and I both have Christmas presents to obtain and then wrap, I'm sure. At least I, at least I know I do. <laughs> so. Okay. Yes. I, I, in fact, I'm doing another round of shopping this afternoon. <laughs> it, was, it was great to speak with you. I look forward to catching up with you in 2023. Um, and given that uh, the, the Twitter sphere seems to change about every 12 hours, I'm predicting that a lot of our commentary will be old news by the time this drops. <laughs> Absolutely no question. Maybe Musk will enter a monastery and donate Twitter to the Wikimedia Foundation, in which case I'm back. Okay, you heard it here first. Dan Kennedy's first <laughs> prediction for 2023. Dan, thanks so much. Happy New Year. Enjoy the holidays. And uh, we'll talk again. Happy New Year to you as well, Michael. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. 